Thanks for checking out this message from River Valley Church in Boise, Idaho. We hope that it encourages you and inspires you. For more messages like this, make sure to check out our podcast. And for more content from River Valley, go to our website, rivervalleyboise.com. Enjoy this message. Thank you. We reiterate what Tim has just said. Your falls are beautiful. Yesterday, blue sky, colored leaves. Back in Portland, we've got gray and colored leaves. Nine months out of the year. That's as good as it gets over there, you know. So you guys truly do have a blessing. We had a tremendous spiritual experience yesterday. I mean, this is a, just a beautiful time. I got to take my grandson down to a Ford dealership, and he got to fire up a, a 2021 Mustang GT. And when 460 horses began to scream, he, his eyes just lit up. So it's the grandfather's responsibility to introduce the grandson to the world of automotive. It is. You know. And then he sat in an F-150 pickup, and he wants one of those too. You know. So we just want to say thank you to the church here for taking care of our family here, our kids. It's always fun to come over and just see what they're doing in the church and everything. And it really is a privilege uh, to share with you because worship is a, a huge part of our life, uh, not only in our church, but our college. We have two programs, one's Bible and one's worship, and we have a four-year program in teaching kids that are going to go on and be worship leaders in churches. And it's so much fun to go to chapel and, and see the young worship leaders as they begin to emerge in their just developing their sensitivity and everything. And, and as it is in their life, so it is in the congregational life. God will take you through new thresholds where he will pull the curtain back and let you see a little bit more of him. And you know, when God lets you do that, you don't have to orchestrate it. You don't have to tell people, raise your hands. You can't keep them down. You can't tell them to you know, bow your knee or whatever. You can't stand up. You can't keep from crying. It's just God comes into the room and the hearts begin to melt. And those are the moments of worship that we ask for, we pray for, we read about them in the scripture and so forth. And today I want to do a couple of things. I want to introduce, first of all, the significance of worship into the kingdom of God. I know that you guys have done series on the Sermon on the Mount, and I just want to make a little bit of a reference to it here as we go through, because worship is not an add-on. Worship is one of the main ingredients. It's one of the planks that we see as we go through. And I'll, I'll show you that as we see it. When Jesus now, when he came back, he was baptized in water in Matthew's gospel, and he goes into the wilderness to be tempted. Once he comes back from the wilderness, it says this in Matthew 4, he went around and preached the gospel of the kingdom. That was his message. It's the kingdom. And I know the church is important, but Matthew only mentions the word church three times. It mentions kingdom 55. We get an idea because church is just a little collection. We're part of a bigger kingdom. And what we do here is to be a reflection on what the whole kingdom is meant to be doing. And so when we go to the book of Matthew, and it has so much in it now about the kingdom of heaven and so forth, we begin to realize this is a big thing. Now, when you guys did the Sermon on the Mount, you go through those three chapters there in Matthew and you begin to realize how significant worship was in this first great sermon that Matthew records. A lot of people believe that the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus introducing the kingdom that he had come to found. 
And now they're used to the kingdoms of the Old Testament with human kings and their frailties and their failures. But he's coming to introduce a new kingdom, but it's going to be different. It's going to run on different principles. And so he takes the time to walk them through that. So he says, let me tell you the kind of people that make up my kingdom. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. He says, those are the kind of people that I love ruling over. Those are the people that make up my kingdom. And twice in the Beatitudes, he says this, blessed are these people for theirs is the kingdom of God. They inherit it. They get it. You know, and God says, I'm proud of those people. I don't mind a kingdom made up of those people. I can work with them. And as you continue to go through the Sermon on the Mount, we get to chapter 6. And I'd like to read to you just a a verse out of chapter 6. It introduces it because he's going to go from theme to theme as he goes through this great Sermon on the Mount. But this is how he starts chapter 6 with these words. Take care not to practice your righteousness in the sight of people, to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. Now, that may sound a little bit harsh there as it goes through, but Jesus has to combat something in his day, and that is that the Jewish culture had been very used to a style of religiosity, and it was characterized in the Pharisees and everything else. And in the previous chapter here, chapter 5, he said this, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. Now that's scary. I mean, that is scary because these guys fasted two days every week. They'd go around, they'd stand on street corners, and they'd recite these long, lengthy prayers. They had to memorize the first five books of the Old Testament. They had to do all that. And he says, you got to exceed that. And we're all saying, no hope. Yeah, that's it. We're out of here. He says, no, 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 no. It's not that you have to do more because if you just do what they're doing, you'll never do enough. You've got to do something different. So chapter 6 starts with this. It says this, when you practice your righteousness, when you begin to put into practice the unique things that make up your relationship with God, and then for the next 18 verses, what's he going to say? When you give to the poor, don't make a lot of money so that everybody takes notice how big your offering is, because giving to God is an act of worship. And when you pray, don't stand on the street corner and and make these long prayers thinking that God will hear you for your many words. Some of the greatest prayers in the Bible, and Nehemiah prays one. It's in Nehemiah chapter 1. And it's this, help. That is it, okay? He's in a situation where he could lose his life, and this is not time for our heavenly... It's not. It's just help. You know, that's what it is. And God heard it. And he hears these beautiful, heartfelt things. And then he goes and he says, and when you fast, don't go around looking like you're fasting. There's no blessing in that. You know, we go around, oh, you look terrible. What's wrong? I'm fasting. I'm holy. He says, these are all three acts of worship. And notice what he says in the Sermon on the Mount. How you worship, your motivation for worship is very crucial. To take almost an entire chapter out of the Sermon on the Mount and dedicate it to worship tells us it's important. It's very significant. And so we go into this and we say, okay, Lord, you've shown us a model. You've shown us a pattern. Now help us with this. Now, we've got some slides up here, I think. 
Let's go to the next one as we go down, and let's talk about worship through the Bible. Let's talk about it, and I, I told the group before the service that I'm going to take you through a panorama of worship from Genesis through Revelation in about 30 seconds. Okay, that's a lie, all right, but it's an attempt. But I do want to take you back, and I want to show you something. Worship is not an add-on. The book of Job tells us in Job chapter 37, and it, that's a section where God is describing when he created the world. And he's going back and he's recounting now Genesis 1 because Job's getting a little self-righteous and so God has to come and say, where were you when I created the world? Where were you when I told the ocean it couldn't go any? Where were you when I set the found? And Job's getting a little bit nervous at this point. And he comes in and he says this, and at the creation when I set the foundation of the world, the angels, the sons of God, were singing. You imagine that? God is up there saying, let there be, and the angels are back there, mm -da, mm -da, you know, and they're just going for it. It's a celestial garage band. It just is, and they're just going for it up there because it's in the environment of worship. What are they worshiping? His mighty works. They see light appear. They see the atmosphere. They see the earth, and they just start singing in the heavens. And one of the very first times you see man and you see him created in Genesis chapter 2 there where God takes dust and breathes into it, the spirit of life. And then it says this, and he placed him in the garden that God had planted. And there in Genesis 2.15 it says this, he had two jobs, to keep the garden and to cultivate it. And if you read the word cultivate in the Hebrew, it is sometimes translated worship. It's the word that is used for the Levites doing the manual work to take care of the house of God. Do you realize that the first act of human worship is taking care of the gift that God has given to us? Cultivating it, expanding it, keeping it clean and neat. I know so often we think of worship as just when we sing. We'll get into that a little bit later. But I want you to know this, that if you do something for God and it brings him glory, it's worship. If you're a medical doctor and you're treating something and it's beyond your skill and you ask a patient if you can pray for them and giving credit to God, it's worship. If you are a teacher training young lives and you're molding those consciences, what you do is an act of worship. When I stand up and teach the word of God, it's an act of worship and thank God I'm not singing. All right, it wouldn't be pretty. All right. But here we realize that worship is not music. Worship is your life. It's the extension of every ability and gifting that God has given to us. And when we give it back to the one who gave it to us, we give him honor and God is blessed. That's called an environment of worship. It's a beautiful situation. So we see, we go through and we look back here and the songs that are back there and uh, I have my students in a class I do called Worship in the Bible. I said, I want you to go through the entire Old Testament, and I want you to list every song that is sung to the Lord, excluding the book of Psalms. We know the book of Psalms are things that are sung. And so block out that 150, and I want you to go through. And the reason I want them to see it is this. You read through a Bible story, and suddenly people start singing. It's like a musical, it, you know, okay, it just is, you know. Instead of talking, everybody's singing, and you go through. And, I mean, the first major song that you sing, they're standing on the edge of the Red Sea. 
they have just walked through on dry land. The Egyptians tried it. The water came over. The dead bodies are coming up. And Miriam grabs a tambourine, and they sing. Look at all the carnage. <laughs> Might as well go for it. And you do it. That's one of the first settings. Why? Because they're thanking God for salvation. They're thanking God for destroying their old enemy that held them slaves for 400 years. That is why any time a person turns away from sin and repents, angels sing in heaven. Why? They're doing the same thing. Somebody's just been set free. And so you go through and you look at the songs. You go into Leviticus, but what a lot of people may not recognize is that one of the most worship-oriented books in the Bible is Revelation. We say, well, it's Psalms. No, actually, the word worship is used more in Revelation than it is in the book of Psalms. And you go back, and when you start reading the stories up there, the minute you get into chapter 1, and John has a vision of the glorified Christ, he falls on his face. He's worshiping. Then he starts seeing visions of heaven, and he sees a throne, and one sitting on the throne, and four guardians of the throne, and 24 elders, and a myriad of angels. And within two chapters, you got five hymns. Five. Five up there. <laughs> You read through chapter 4 and 5, every time they look at the guy on the throne, somebody cranks up a new song. The four living creatures, you know, it's the Beatles over, and they're going for it, and they're up there, and then you've got 24 elders. It's amazing. You look at this, heaven is filled with worship. It's our destiny. It's where we're headed. We might as well get used to it. Do you realize the only four times in the entire Bible that the English word hallelujah is used is in Revelation 19. And it all has to do with Jesus coming back on a white horse with King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And everybody starts screaming, hallelujah. It's a book of worship. And we see literally from Genesis through Revelation, you're going to see worship all the way through. And that's why we come at the point like this and we begin to look and see that this is a big thing. I go through a section in the class with the students. When you look at the word worship in the English language, there are five Hebrew words that are translated at some time or another worship, and there are, along with that, there's going to be now uh, seven other Greek words that are sometimes translated worship, and they're all different. And here's just a little insight. In those 12 words that are all translated worship, none of them have to do with singing. which means there's a whole realm of worship that has to go beyond the song service. It's the world that we live in out here. And so we began to look at this and go through and say, God, what are you trying to say? And oftentimes, when you look at the area of worship, it can be reduced down to our attitude. Do we fear him? Do we honor him? Do we revere him? It has then to do with our actions do we bow? I saw Pastor Tim kneeling during the worship service. Nobody told him to. Do we lift our hands? Back in the ancient world, the reason they would lift their hand is to point to the one that they knew had given them something. It's a way to say, you're the man. You have blessed my life. It's literally throwing a kiss to say thank you to somebody who has done. And so worship is in our actions. We are and it's also in our service. We see in there as we go through the word, the most common word in the New Testament is 
dealing with the work that somebody does in the house of God, the practical work that is there. Worship in the life of Jesus. We see in the life of Jesus, if Jesus is going to come in and usher in a a kingdom with worship in it, worship's got to be part of his life. Oh, and it was. Look at the day he was born. Angels came down, and they shouted in the heaven, glory to God in the highest. At the age of two, some wise men, some magi that came from Parthia, and they came over and found this two-year-old taught. They had been looking at kings for years, and they bow down and worship a two-year-old child that is there. You see, Jesus began to grow. Look at him when he gets to be the age of 30 and he gets baptized. He goes into the wilderness and Satan is going to do everything he can to distract him from his mission. And one of the distractions is this. If you worship me, I'll give you the kingdoms of the world. He tries to tempt us with the wrong kind of worship. And can I say this? If that's the way the devil tests the number one son of God, that's the way he's going to test other sons of God. He's going to test us in our heart loyalty. He's going to test us in those areas. When Jesus walked around and he did things, kids broke into worship. Children are running around singing songs. Jesus rides a donkey into a town. They throw palm branches down. They're singing Hosanna to the son of David. You go all the way through, even to the hours just before his death. He's with his 12 disciples, actually 11. One of them has gone to Costco. Okay. He's going to cash in on some silver coins. He's over. But with them, 11, it says this, before the darkest hour of his life, Jesus sang a hymn with his disciples. And then he goes and lays down the ultimate sacrifice that he can. Worship. Jesus is surrounded by worship. He loved it. He loved it when people did. And it's part of the life that he is coming to give here. And he taught about it. He taught about it. We mentioned Jesus' teaching now as we go through, and he teaches about the life of the kingdom. Let me just throw up a a fun little thing that you can go study on your own. Throughout the four Gospels, the biggest concentration now of the word worship is in one little story, the story of Jesus at a well with a little woman from Samaria. And the woman at the well, it mentions the word worship or worshiping ten times in about six verses. It just packs them all together in there. And what's cool about that story is Jesus is talking to this woman and he wants to dig deep into her life and says, why don't you go get your husband? And she wants to deflect that question. It's too personal. And so what does she do? She brings up worship. That let's talk about worship. Let's not talk about my private life. And isn't it interesting how she was willing to swing over and say, let's talk about worship when her personal life was not in order. Can we make a switch from our personal life that's not in order and then go and try to say we can worship? Maybe the Lord says, let's get the private life in order first and let's go to the other. And so Jesus talked about these things. Now, the heart of what I want to do today is I want to talk about creating a culture of worship in a church, in a personal life. And I want to give you some insights into this as we go through David, probably one of the greatest worshipers in the Bible, when he ascended to the throne of Israel, he was there, and the first administrative act of King David was to find the Ark of God. You find this. He takes over the city of Jerusalem. He sets up his throne there. That's in 2 Samuel chapter 5, 2 Samuel 6. He says, where's the Ark? I can't be king if God's not king. 
I need his throne next to me. And so he goes and finds it. And you remember the story. He went to bring it up and he failed because he tried to copy the Philistine way of doing it and so forth. The ark was always meant to be carried on the shoulders of God's priests. Can I say that's where it still rests? The presence of God rests on the shoulders of his priests. It's how well we prepare to bear the burden of the presence of the Lord and so forth. And when he finally got everything straight, they went and got the ark and they were bringing it back and said they would go six steps and they would offer up an animal sacrifice. They go another six, and there's a lot of cows that are going to have to die before this ark gets back there, you know. And they're going through, and then he puts it in a little tent, but then what happens next is amazing. He appoints 4,200 musicians and singers. He's the only king that does this. Over 4,000 musicians divides them now into 24 groups so that one group can minister in music and in song, and when they finally gave out, the next one rotates in. I mean, look at your worship team up here. They did great. They went through four songs today. You imagine 24 hours, <laughs> you know, your fingers are going to be bleeding, Jason's going to be back dying, his knees are going to be giving back, and so forth. It's time for the second group. And they come in and they rotate through. Why did he do that? So that there was never a time during the day when worship didn't ascend before the throne of God. Financing 4,000 musicians, that's a garage band. That really is. Just so God's throne is always encompassed with worship. No wonder God said, this is a man after my own heart. I love this guy because he loves my presence. Now, the word culture is a very interesting word. We go back to it in its, its uh, origin. It's a Latin term. It, mean, it comes from the Latin term culture, and it's actually an agricultural word. We think of culture as the way that people live. It's the clothing they wear, the food they eat. We think of that in culture. But culture goes back to an agricultural word, and it literally means this. It's the work that is invested in a piece of ground to produce a certain crop. And that's why when you go, if you go to out on a Christmas tree lot here in a month or so and you buy a Christmas tree, you have a, a wild one or one that's never been cultured. But then those ones that are perfectly conically in shape and trees don't grow that way, all right? But it's perfectly conically been shaped and trimmed. We call that a cultured tree. Why? Because somebody put effort into it to make it look exactly the way that they wanted to. And a culture now, when we look at it in, in light of this, is the effort that we put into something in order to produce a certain crop. We were out in Napa yesterday driving through the fields, and you could see them. a lot of them had their fall plowing already. And they had disc things under, and they were plowing, getting ready for the next growing season. And there are seasons in which you do certain things. But see, the farmer is not looking forward to just the dirt. The farmer's looking forward to the crop that's going to come in the following year. But there are steps that need to be taken in order to produce the desired crop. And I'd like to put some slides up for you because these are the different steps now that we're going to go through in creating the culture of worship. The first one is you've got to clear the land. My great-grandfather homesteaded over where the boys grew up and Katie and so forth, and it was all timber. He had to cut the timber, he had to pull the stumps with draft horses in order for him to get pasture land and in order to cultivate, and so he could raise berries and cucumbers and stuff like that. For a lot of your soil over here, you've got 
we tried to dig down and plant some tulips the other day. You guys have serious rock problems over here, you know? I think that's what Boise is in the native Indian, means rocks in dirt. It just does, you know, but you go through, and there's just rocks everywhere. In order to grow, you've got to get rid of that. I've got a good parable for you that talks about planting seed in rocky ground. Okay? You've got to get rid of some of the obstacles that are there in order for you even to do the next one that we find here, and that is that you've got to go break up the fallow ground. If you let farmland sit for a while and the rain falls on, it gets hard. If you let the sod grow and the roots intertwine, you can hardly get a shovel through it at times. And that's why the farmers would plant in the fall after the first rain. It would soften it and they could till the soil. But remember back in the book of Hosea in the Old Testament, he talks to the nation and he uses this analogy and he says, break up the fallow ground. Fallow is uncultivated ground. It's gotten hard. Nobody's worked with it. We haven't broken it up. And he says that in light of preparing for God visiting his people and doing something. We've got to get in there and we've got to break up some of that ground because our hearts can get hard. We can get offended. We can get hurt. We can get disillusioned. And then we start thinking about all the bad things in life and that dirt just gets harder. And God wants to come and throw some seed and it just bounces off the top and you know what happened. The birds come and take it away. We got to do this. We got to come and break it up. The third one is you got to plant. You got to plant good seed. You just do. You know, if you want a crop out there, it's not going to grow on its own. The farmer can't stand there without planting any seed. And so I'm going to wait for, you know, sugar beets next year. I'm going to wait for potatoes. No, you got to plant stuff. Because the seed of the end result is in there. The germination, it's in the genetic code of the seed. And we have to plant. I know back in our church, back in the mid-70s when they just broke into praise and worship, Brother Dick taught on praise and worship for several months before the church actually entered in. Why? He's preparing the soil. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. How can we have faith for something if we don't even know what God is saying at this point? And so we plant the good seeds. We plant it in our seminars, our prayers, what we're trying to do today, and you go through. And then after you plant the seeds, that's not the end. Then you go back and cultivate. I used to always wonder why my dad would be out and he'd plant he was, my grandpa was a farmer. My dad loved farming. He'd go out, he'd plant his crop, and then I'd see him out there in this hot weather in July hoeing. And I could never figure out, Dad, you know, what are you doing? <laughs> it's 92 degrees outside. It's not cool. All right. But the reason, he told me one day, he says, the summer bakes the soil and it gets hard. My hoe, I'm there to not just take out weeds, but keep the soil loose so that oxygen and moisture can get to the roots. Do we keep our heart open? Do we allow through the growth season for stuff to get to the roots that are down inside? That's what the cultivation part is all about. Hold back the weeds and keep those elements coming in. And then you've got tending. The tending is where you're going to come and you're going to go through and you're going to fertilize when you need to. You're going to check for pest control and everything else, stuff that wants to destroy the crop. But when you get down to the last one, it's this. It's called harvesting. After all that work, you get the crop. And remember what cultivate means. To put effort into a piece of ground for a desired result. What is our desired result? What is it that we want? Do we want to have one of those meetings where I don't know what happened, but after the second song, 
I was on my knees crying, and I couldn't stop. I've never felt the presence of God like that in my life, but now I know He's really there. He's really there. He's not just an idea in a book. He's really there. He talked to me. But it takes the work to do this. Hopefully over the next couple of weeks you can deal with this more. And, and think of it this way, and I'll just give you a picture and you can take it with you. When you look at the temple or the tabernacle in the Old Testament, this is how the priest would go from his tent into the presence of God. There was always a path that he walked in, and he had to walk past certain pieces of furniture, an altar, a basin that he would wash his hands and feed on, a candlestick that illuminated a table of bread now that he would have a, a feast in front of God and everything, and going in. And can I say this? That before we just jump into the presence of the Lord, we have to make sure that we stop at these pieces of furniture. If there's sin, we take care of it. If there's stuff we need to get clean from, we get clean from. And we begin to work our way in so that by the time we cross over into the presence of God, His presence is not a scary thing, but it's a good thing. It's a healthy thing. It's a beautiful thing. And this is how we cultivate it. We know what it takes to get in. If you want to see what happens if it doesn't work this way, in Leviticus chapter 10, there's a story of two priest's kids. Aaron's two of his sons decided to go into the presence of the Lord in an unacceptable way. And God took them out. Those are priest kids. He took them out. And God says to Aaron at that point, anybody who comes close to me must be able to distinguish between the holy and the profane. There's one for you. <laughs> Do I try to bring the profane into the presence of the Lord? Well, this goes to our next one that we go into, and I want to talk about atmosphere a little bit. There are three component parts. I've got a slide here. There are three component parts that are essential to making something grow. Number one is sunlight. Number two is moisture. And number three now over there is a proper mix of gases in our atmosphere. These are the things that are necessary for the germination to take place. You need lengthening hours of sunlight and so forth, and it goes through, and then the moisture to help germinate and break down the little covering around this, the, the skin now on the, the seeds and so forth. And then finally, as you get over into the air, the air is necessary for photosynthesis. It's necessary now for the metabolism in living creatures and so forth. You may not recognize that, but those are the first three days of creation. On the first day, God created light. On the second day, he created, now he created the, well, actually the atmosphere. He separated the atmosphere, the waters above, so he created a firmament here. On the third day, he separated the land now from the water, and it was on the fourth day, vegetables came. Three things that were essential. We need light. We need the proper gases that are around us and so forth. And when we look at this issue on atmosphere, Atmosphere is that envelope of gases that surrounds our planet. It's a proper mixture of oxygen and nitrogen. If it's too much one way or the other, stuff doesn't grow. Life does, it's an exact formula designed by God. And in here, we got a quote. We put up a, a lengthy slide. And I want to define atmosphere for you this way. It's what makes possible now and supports the production of the spiritual fruit that is developing. If we change the spiritual atmosphere in a church, it affects the crop that is growing. If something happens in the air quality, something gets into the air quality and so forth, 
the plants suffer. And God's now coming and he says, I need to change the atmosphere. And sometimes the atmosphere are those invisible things, but they're there. We come to a worship service with invisible gases, attitudes, feelings, divisiveness to other people, and all of these affect what happens in church. We don't see them. They're buried down here. But when you read the book of 1 Corinthians and you read through the very first chapter, he says, church at Corinth, I see that you're divided. Some of you are of Paul and some of you are of Paulus and everything else. He said, the problem with the church is your atmosphere is unhealthy. You're fighting each other. You're putting each other down. You're boasting about what you're doing and everything else. And then he takes him into that beautiful section in chapters 11, 12, 13, and 14 where he starts talking about the table of the Lord where we all come to equal ground. We celebrate the life that Jesus has prepared for us. Then we go to chapter 12, the gifts of the Holy Spirit. But then he goes into chapter 13 and says, but the gifts mean nothing if there's no love. You can have faith to move mountains, but if you have no love, it's nothing. And then he says in chapter 14, and this is where we kind of want to wrap up today, he says this, when you come together, some of you will have a song, some of you will have a teaching, some of you may have a tongue, whatever. Whatever you bring, prepare it so that everybody can be edified. And we look at this and we bring it to a, a, a climax, and I'll address the little sheet that I gave you here today. What we bring to church creates an atmosphere. Whether it's an atmosphere that can grow well, good things, or an atmosphere that stifles the things that want to grow. And that's why we have to take the time to say, Lord, what is it? What is it in my life? Are the essential ingredients appropriate now for this? Now, I've given you a handout, and I want to just you know, give it to you. And basically, this is for your own benefit to go home and take a look at it. It's called A Life of Worship. And I'm not going to read through the whole thing. I'll just summarize it, and that's this. God wants more than a worship service here on Sunday morning that lasts 20 minutes. He wants your life to be a sacrifice. Do you remember what he says in the book of Romans chapter 12? He says this. He says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And he says, this is your reasonable act of worship. Letting God change this. He says, that is the ultimate sacrifice to say, you control my thoughts, not me. And then he says, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to. Realize God gives everybody a gift and he gives everybody a measure. And he goes through all these different things and says, change the way you think. Because as you come together, we need to think together in our minds. And this is the atmosphere that we create. We walk through life. And the point that I've given to you, and this is it, a life of worship is one where God is honored in everything we do, not just our singing. Look at some of the great stories you find in the Old Testament. And in there, as you read through, it says, one of the greatest acts of worship that we as Christians can do is live a life that is so beautifully marked by the characteristics of God that the unsaved world honors God. Oh, they wouldn't do that. Oh, yes, they do. There's a little expression that is thrown around, and people don't even think about it when they use it. 
they have a near accident or something, they come out, and the first thing out of their mouth, thank God. Where did that come from? Anytime that you see something go a direction it shouldn't have gone, and that there was an intervention in there, and God watches over, there was a providential hand. And when people say that, thank God, it's the recognition that there's somebody out there bigger than just me. I look at the story of Daniel. He's one of my all-time heroes. Daniel served in a pagan court. The guy that he served, Nebuchadnezzar, was anything but a Christian for a while. And Daniel just spent his time interpreting dreams. And he interpreted a dream in Daniel chapter 4, and he interpreted it for Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar went nuts for seven years. He just did. And it was all out of ego. He said, look what I have done. And he went crazy. He ate grass like a cow, and he, he was out in the pasture, and everybody said, and there's our king over there next to the two Holsteins. You know, and you look at this. And at the end of the seven years, Nebuchadnezzar, notice what it says. He lifted his eyes to heaven, and he blessed the God of heaven, and he begins one of the most beautiful little two-verse sections on, praise the Almighty God who rules in heaven and does on earth. And here is a pagan who is brought to a moment of worship through a faithful servant. Darius, in chapter 6, does the same thing. After Daniel comes out of the lion's den, Darius made a law that covered all of his domain from India to North Africa, saying, I want everybody to honor the God of Daniel. To live such a life that it makes your God look great. The people visiting said, what a church. I walked through and the first person I met just talked to me. Nobody talks to me. Everybody's afraid of COVID. But this person talked to me. They prayed for me and so forth. What are we doing? We're creating an atmosphere. And so as we get into the coming days, Trey's going to talk about the music part. He's probably going to talk about that. But what we're going to look to, there's more to this worship than just what we do here. And God wants us to become a worshiping church. He looks for that. He covets that. And the scripture actually tells us this. He said, I will enthrone myself in the praises of my people. Whenever I hear music like that, God, did you know God sings? It actually says that in Zephaniah chapter 3. He sings over his people. Yeah. And when we're up there just having a great, God's foot is tapping. It just is. Where do you think we get a sense of rhythm? We were created in the image of our God. He knows it. Well, I want to pray for you, church. I want to end here today, and then we're going to release you to your normal time. So why don't you pray with me? Father, we just thank you. I just thank you for this great church, and I just thank you that as this church now moves into a new phase of their life, that just like a child growing, they're going to grow and experience and learn new things. And Father, I pray for them. I pray that they will capture your heart. I pray that they will discover those moments when they know that they've been in your presence and they are not the same. And let your spirit hover over every gathering, over every song. We really pray for that. And so guide our time. Guide the time of this church with Pastor Tim and all of the staff, with the youth staff and so forth, as they lead the entire church into a new dimension of worship and appreciation. So really be with them, I ask that in your name. Amen.
Now, I know you guys are going to break out into some groups, and I want to leave you with two questions, and Tim will go through them a little bit. It's this. Is worship part of your regular relationship with God, or does it only happen once a week? If it only happens once a week, it's not going to have a lot of impact on your life. It's got to be more frequent. It's got to offset all the other junk that we get in, you know, encountered with. That's our first one. And our second one is there. What is your individual responsibility as you prepare for a weekly church gathering? Do we come to be observers or do we come to be participants? Do we come prepared to give and offer something? And that's something that we have to learn to develop in our heart. You know, Because maybe after we get here, it's a little late. We start early in the morning, get our thoughts clear and whatever. Because I want to be able to share something. I want to be able to bless the church when we get there today. Well, God bless you guys. Thanks again for listening to this message. Do you know someone who'd be blessed by it? Make sure to share it with them this week.